to have some people back who've been gone. Whoops, Ed, sorry. Careful with this thing. Ed left his, uh, what is this thing, a microphone? Yeah, I'll try not to knock it off. Good to, it's good to see some of you we haven't seen for a while. And it's good to know that uh, God's traveling mercies were on you and that he blessed your trips. Um, those of you who've been around know that, uh, well, I think when we started the Sermon on the Mount, which was right back at the beginning of the year, uh, you remember Nate saying he just, he just read it, took him 11 minutes, and I think I said subsequently it took me 12 minutes, because I don't read quite as fast as Nate, and now we're in about our 36th or 7th uh, week of looking into what Jesus said in certainly one morning or one afternoon, certainly one day. We're getting close to the end. I want to um, start off today just by backing up a little bit uh, in front of the scriptures that we're going to dive into today to recapture. I'd like to go to Matthew 7. And I'd like to start uh, at verse 13. Nate handled this passage a few weeks back. And uh, let's just read together, shall we? Matthew 7, starting with verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. That was one sermon right there. From what? Three weeks ago? Four weeks ago? And the next one was, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And that was one sermon by itself. And then last week, Brian took us through uh, these next few verses. Verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. You will know who by their fruits? False prophets, that's who we were just talking about. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by the fruits. Reading on, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If anyone here knows of a more sober and potentially terrifying passage of Scripture in the entire Bible, I'd like you to point it out to me. Because I would say, I don't know of one. I don't know of anything more sober than what Jesus said right here. 
And if you think about it, we're going we're gonna to dive into this a little ways. Um, what a startling thing. Jesus is up on the mountain. You know, we, we, we don't have the exact picture, but probably the people were spread out on the hill, and he was probably facing uphill so that they could hear him. Maybe he was on top, speaking down. I don't know for sure. And as we've said, we don't know how many people were there. Disciples. But he was being followed by a multitude. And at the end of, her, of chapter 7 here, it says a multitude came down. So I'll just tell you, I mean, I picture maybe a couple hundred people. I don't, I'm not putting that out as a gospel. I don't know. I think it was more than a handful. I don't think it was thousands and thousands. But just imagine, they're just up on a, they're just up on a hill, and all of a sudden Jesus is starting to talk about himself as though he is going to make final judgment. This guy, this carpenter's son, that they hadn't been around for very long, and this is pretty early in his ministry, as far as we, as far as we know from the Gospels. This wasn't late in his ministry. He starts making some rather, shall we say, audacious statements. Before we go on, would you just bow with me for a minute? I'd like to pray. Lord, it's such a privilege to be able to break the bread of your word together. And Lord, I confess to you that this passage we're studying today is the most sober that I know of. It is the most potentially terrifying that I know of. Lord, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you will enliven anything that's said here that's of you and true, and Lord, that you would literally, that you would literally uh, stop any word from coming forth that's not from you, from your spirit. And most of all, Lord, that you give us a level of understanding that perhaps we haven't had before, and that we heed this caution, this very grave and serious caution that you're giving us and that you would sear it into our heart, the gravity, soberness, the import of what Jesus said here. We give this time to you, Lord. We ask you to bless it. In Christ's name, amen. I'll read the last three again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And when I, then I will declare to them, I never knew you apart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I want to parse this thing out just a little bit uh, and, then, and then hopefully wrap up with uh, some summary about it. Let's just look at these words for a minute. The, this, this expression, Lord, Lord, it's twice in here. You know, I don't know of any place where Jesus' disciples said, Lord, Lord. They said, Lord. They didn't say, Lord, Lord. And, and I think as a manner of speaking, this was someone's way of emphasizing what's going on. But, would it, but what, what should it mean? What's the word Lord mean? Let's think about that. It's easy for it to roll off of our tongue, and it might be easier for us to use it uh, in a light manner just by, just by repetition 
and take some of the real important meaning out of it, right? What is the Lord? The master. The leader. In fact, in, in much of world history, it's the person who owns you. That's who the Lord is. The person who owns you. These people were coming up and saying something to Jesus, and I think we're going to see as we dive in here, they were using words, they were addressing him in a manner that was not reflective by how they really were toward him. Does that make sense? Maybe that's over obvious. What did Jesus say? The ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, what's the will of the Father? Well, we're going to look at a couple scriptures. This is a great puzzler to people so often. How many times you have somebody, oh, I just need to know God's will. I just need to know God's will, whether I should buy this car or not, whether I should date this person or not, whether I should get a dog or a cat. I just can't decide. I need to know God's will about this. We have a a natural tendency to want to know God's will about some pretty trivial things, quite frankly. And, And the word's quite clear about what God's will is. That just doesn't sound like the, that doesn't quite sound like the exciting aspect or the exciting detail that we were looking for. Let's look at this passage in Romans. Romans 12 and verse 12. Whoops, what did I do? I must have some, oh, excuse me, not verse 12, verse 2. I'm going to back up with, read verse 1 first. Romans 12, starting with verse 1, I urge you, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I don't know, Rick. It sounds to me like part of God's will for us is not to be transformed to the world and have our mind renewed. Amen? Let's look at another one. I'm going to go back to uh, 1 Thessalonians here. There's a couple of verses here I particularly want to draw our attention to. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, if you take this and look at it in its entirety, there are several things talked about here, but our sanctification is God's will. Just go over the page, chapter 5, and let's start with verse 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, starting with 16. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, God's will is such a great mystery. The word's fairly clear about it. Amen? Jesus goes on to say something else here. He says, many will say to me on that day, 
on that day, like on what day? What's the day? Do you know? Well, he's talking about a particular day. It's a day of judgment. That's what he's talking about. And we're not going to dive in this morning whether it's the uh, whether it's the bema seat judgment or the great white throne judgment because I don't think that actually matters to what Jesus is saying here. For us to understand it, there is a judgment. There will be a day. It will happen. And the outcome of that judgment is what Jesus is talking about here right now. He says on that day. They're going to come on that day. What are they going to do? Let's look, let's look at that day just for a minute. You don't need to go to this one. I'll just read it. Um, it's from Matthew 12. I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you'll be condemned. But let's do go to Romans 14. The verse that I'd like you to see. Romans chapter 14. Verse 12. So then each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Ever think about that? You know, it's not, not something that's just preached about a whole lot, I don't think, anymore. Every one of us will give account. Everyone. And when we're there, there won't be anybody else speaking on our behalf, and there won't be anybody covering for us. And if you look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 4, in the interest of time, I, I gave you more verses than we're going to have time to go to today, but I would encourage you to look at them because they all pertain, and they're roughly in the order that, of the subjects we're going through. Hebrews 4, verse 13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The eyes of him with whom we have to do. What does that mean? The eyes of him with whom we have to deal. The eyes of him with whom we ultimately will give account. Is this intended to be scary? No, it's not intended to be scary. Why did Jesus put this warning in here? This is a grave, grave warning. Now look at the stuff they did. They said, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do mighty works? I think it's interesting. Jesus doesn't even challenge them on whether that happened or not. He didn't say, no, you didn't. He doesn't register. It doesn't even register with him that they made this appeal, right? He didn't say he didn't do it or he didn't acknowledge they did do it. If you ask me my understanding or opinion, I think they did do it. I think they did prophesy. And I think they did cast out demons. And I think they did do mighty works. But they were confused about something. They thought, they thought that that was going to gain the Lord's approval. And it clearly didn't. I want you to look at a verse in 2 Corinthians 10, 18. Excuse me. Yeah, 
10, 18, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself that is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. See, these people were commending themselves to Christ. They're saying, look what we did, look what we did, look what we did. And we're going we're gonna to earn your favor, we're going to earn your approval by recounting to you what we did. Is this, I have to ask, is this thing like doing something weird? It sounds kind of, what's that? Sounds like the fans beating on it or something. Sorry about that. It's not the one who commends himself that's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. We're never going to commend ourselves to him. He's either going to commend us or he's not. Can you imagine anything more stunning than coming to the judgment seat of Christ? hoping or expecting to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, thank you. And instead hearing, I never knew you. That's the most dramatic, stark, shocking thing that my mind could ever conceive. Because it's important to understand, these people didn't think they were going to pull a fast one. They genuinely believed. They genuinely believed that they were in a right place with the Lord. And he said to them, I never knew you. Wow. They said, didn't we do this stuff in your name? There's a verse in Colossians that makes it very clear we're to do everything in Christ's name. But simply invoking Christ's name doesn't cut it. All right? That's, that's one of the main things Jesus is saying here. If you look over at Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. It wasn't that... It wasn't that doing something in his name was wrong. It was that they were using his name incorrectly. They were using his name when their hearts were not aligned with the words coming out of their mouth or even the actions. Now, before we leave this, before we leave this prophesy, cast out demons, do mighty works element, I just want to say, you know, I don't, there's not many of us here that say, yeah, I've done all those things. Yeah, I've prophesied, I've cast out demons, done a lot of mighty works. Um, I won't claim that. won't claim it at all. But I think Jesus is calling into account whatever we do that we say we're doing in his name when something about our motive is wrong, it's missing, it's amiss. I mean, it could be anything. It could be, yeah, I make coffee before the service starts, or, or uh, you know, I serve, I serve in my church in the following way, or I serve other people in the following way, or I do all, all these compassionate things, or, or I teach Sunday school, or I, you know, 
or I preach on Sunday or whatever. I mean, when it says prophesy, you guys understand that doesn't just necessarily mean uh, foretelling the future. It's preaching. It's what I'm doing right now. I could be here right now prophesying, and I could be one of the people that Jesus said, never knew you. Never knew you. It's a brave thing to think about, isn't it? He went on to say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's a passage in 2 Thessalonians, I don't want to take the time to, to go to it, but I would encourage you to read it. A passage about the lawless one, you know? And, it, and what Jesus says, lawlessness, I would say look at this passage in 2 Thessalonians and see... If you don't agree, that's really the spirit. It's the spirit of lawlessness that he's talking about. It's a lawless one. You know, the people that Jesus is talking about here, what, what, what do we call them? I mean, what, how would we categorize them? I think we would have to say they're cultural Christians. They're cultural Christians or maybe make-believe Christians. Important thing to keep in mind, they think they're okay. They think they're okay. They're self-deceived about that. They profess something. They're making statements about things that are not really borne out. In other words, they talk the talk. Talk a really good game. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? And like I said, I think they really did do it. They were, re they were actually really good at it. You know, they were good at keeping themselves busy doing these things. Not just busy. It sounds like they were kind of hyper-productive at what they did. That's not the measure that's not God's measure of our heart. That's not God's measure of whether he's really Lord of our life. Now, the, the scriptures are clear. In order to be saved, we have to make a confession of Christ as Lord. Amen? We're, coming, we're not coming to the Lord without confessing him as Lord. But there's a distinction that's important for us to understand, and that is just a profession of who Jesus is is not a confession of Jesus as Lord. There's a couple of very sober verses here. Let's look at them. Look in Mark chapter 1. There's a demon-possessed man that was in the synagogue right at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And look at what he says. Look at what the demon says. Jesus cast him out. Look what he said. Verse 24. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is a demon speaking. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's, a, that's an acknowledgment of who Jesus was. It's nothing the same as confessing Jesus as Lord, as master, as leader, as, as the owner of our lives. 
Another verse I'd like to look at is over in James, and you guys are certainly familiar with this one, I think. Um, it's James, the second chapter, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. What's my point? Simply believing, simply acknowledging, simply saying, I acknowledge who Jesus, I acknowledge there was a Jesus, I acknowledge who he was. That's not, that's not the same as Jesus is your Lord. Not the same as Jesus is your master. No one enters the kingdom of God without confessing Jesus is Lord, but we are not, we are not saved by affirming who Jesus is. Why is this so important? Because there's a, there's a lot of strange <laughs> there's a lot of strange teaching that's spread abroad that I think misses this point entirely. It just misses it entirely. What's a demonstration of our faith? Obedience. It's not just saying, it's not just saying, yeah. Lord, Lord. See, this was the problem. They said, Lord, Lord. They knew the right words. They knew the right name to call him, but they did not mean it. When they said, Lord, they were not addressing him as their true master. All right? They were using, they were using phraseology. They were using spiritual-sounding terminology. True faith is shown through obedience. Now, we're not saved by works. All right. We're not, we're not going there. But the scriptures are totally clear that if we truly know Christ and we're known by Christ, we'll live lives of obedience. Let's look at a, let's look at a scripture in 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. For this is the love of God. This is 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. What's the proof of your love of the Lord? Well, are you doing what he told you to do? Not works. Not up for preaching works. Works aren't salvation. Obedience is a natural byproduct of a bond servant that's willingly serving his master. Amen? It's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. You're to live in accordance with what we believe. Okay. We've read a mighty, sober passage of Scripture. If anyone hasn't at some point read this passage and said, wow, is this me? Could this be me? Could I be there on Judgment Day and have Christ say to me, I never knew you? Is this a, just a big guessing game? Like we can't really know? No, we can know. We can know. Last week, Rick, because you weren't here and we know that you like to 
modern songs more than the old songs. We sang, we sang Blessed Assurance last week. <laughs> and Blessed Assurance, what's the assurance? The assurance that we're, we belong to the Lord. That's the, that's the blessed assurance. What do we do to make sure that we're not deceived? What's our protection against being deceived? Can you think about it? I mean, how did these people get to the judgment day and say, Lord, Lord, we did all this great stuff, but he said, I never knew you. I never knew you. Well, I think the word has great instruction for us in this regard. I think there's really two, there's two ways, two things from which we derive our assurance that we are in right relationship with the Lord. One of them is we trust the Holy Spirit to lead us into truth. Amen? If God's Spirit is dwelling in us, God's Spirit was sent to lead us into all truth, and we walk with and by the Spirit, we're not going to get led into some strange, strange thing. But there's even a self-test. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians 13. This is just a... powerful admonishment for us. Second Corinthians 13, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Brian, I know you brought this one out last week. Won't hurt to repeat it, huh? Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves? Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. If, if the Spirit indwells us and we walk by the Spirit, the Spirit is going to lead us into truth. And if we examine ourselves, as Paul is, is saying here, not just examine, but test yourselves to say, is Christ in us? You know, I need to back up on something that, that I didn't point out. When Jesus said, I never knew you, um, you guys understand what he meant there by the word new? Like, we don't do this in English very good. Other languages, and I'm certainly no uh, linguist, but I did take German once, Therese, and, uh, and in German, the word to say I know a fact or I know about something, that's a different word than I know you. You know, it's to, to, know, to have knowledge about something. Like if I say, yeah, I know. I know uh, physics. That's a different word than saying I know trees. That's a different word. Greek's the same. This word that Jesus is using is, is no, like in an intimate way. This is the same no as back when 
when it was said, Mary said, how can I, can I have a child? I haven't known a man. And, and the gospel's clear. Joseph had not known Mary. This is, a, this is the intimate knowing. It's a, very, it's a very close knowing. It's not like a superficial or long-distance thing. That's, what, that's the same word Jesus is using when I say, I never knew you. And I'm just going to tell you that I think we today have a probably a uh, a major failure that's widespread in in terms of self-examining. Does that make sense? Not throwing rocks at anybody here. I'm just saying this isn't stress. It isn't stress. What does the word say? How often should we examine ourselves? What does it say? It doesn't say. I'll tell you how I how often I think. Like real often. Like I think this may be even part of what Jesus meant when he said, Take up your cross daily. Take up your cross daily. And we're going to examine ourselves. We're, we're going to, we're going to remind ourselves and identify ourselves all the time. Who do we belong to? We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to a master. We belong to a Lord. We belong to Christ. He is our master. He is our Lord. We surrendered the ownership of our own lives to him. Or if we didn't, um, we may be in the category of the people who, whom he says, I never knew you. All right? Not only do we have a failure, I think, in this regard, widespread, and I'm not saying in this church right now, failure, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we are surrounded. Do you guys understand this? We're surrounded by false teaching. Do you know that? It's not, it's not like, well, there's a little dab of it. There's a little dab of it in the church in the United States. No, there's a, an entire majority of it in the church in the United States, and I say that not on my own authority, just on the simple authority of God's word. There are all kinds of things taught and said that are contrary to scripture. And we need to be, we need to be wise about that. We need to understand that that's going on. You ever seen this happen? Or have you ever had it happen? When someone says, well, you know, they're really not so sure about their salvation. And someone jumps in real quickly. Oh, no, 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 You're, it's okay. You said the sinner's prayer back when you were six and a half years old, didn't you? And, you know, things have gone pretty good, so you shouldn't be questioning that. I say be careful making statements like that. What if the Holy Spirit of God's convicting that person's heart and trying to purify them and trying to draw them into true, right relationship, and someone steps in and says, oh, no, anytime you feel that way, that's just the, that's the enemy. That's just the enemy condemning you. Remember back when we studied the Beatitudes and we went through mourning or grieving? And I said, there's two kinds. One, it's without hope. And it leads to destruction. And the other one is with hope. And it leads to repentance 
which is life. That's the difference, and that's how, that's how we know. We know if the Holy Spirit is working on our heart, bringing something to our attention, drawing us to say, hey, there's something here that needs to be dealt with. There's something here that needs to change. There's something here that needs to be corrected, which is different than the accuser of the brethren said, you're not really, Marilyn. You're not really, you know. You're a loser. You're no good. That's the enemy's way. It's a way of discouragement. It's a way of squashing hope. It's a way of, frankly, death and destruction. You know, deceived people didn't come through that narrow gate that we talked about a few verses back. They came kind of down the broad way, and, it's, and it's, it looked like it had a sign that said, leads to heaven, you know, big flashing light. They didn't find the narrow gate. And what was the difference between the gates and the paths? One of them didn't really require repentance. One of them didn't require, really require my life to change. One of them really didn't require me to be obedient going forward or anything. You notice it's not just coming through the gate. It said the gate's narrow. You notice it said the path's narrow too? It's not like we squeeze through the gate and then all of a sudden the path gets wide. There's a wide gate in front of a broad path. There's a narrow gate in front of a narrow path. I think when we examine ourselves, and I think we clearly do, what does that look like? What would, it be, what would it look like for us to go examine ourselves the way Paul admonished in 2 Corinthians? Well, I think we ask ourselves some questions. And we better be honest about the questions and we better be honest about the answers. And I think all the questions are something like this. What am I in this for? Why am I really in this? Why am I really sitting here at Cornerstone Christian on September 10th, 2023? Why, have I, why, why am I doing the things I'm doing? And I think we always have to be vigilant about this. Am I doing them because of how they make me feel? Like, are my feelings involved in this thing? Or am I seeking some kind of blessing in this thing? Am I on the watch for some really cool experience? Am I, am I after prosperity? In other words, is there any part of me, is there any part of me that's why I'm in it? Does that make sense? Because let me tell you, there ought not be. And if we find some of ourself at the center of why we are walking with the Lord, that needs to be dealt with. That's the thing. That's the thing that was missed by these people that Jesus is talking about. Verses 21 through 23. On the other hand, our self-examination is, I'll tell you why, man. To exalt him to glorify Him, to honor Him, to worship Him for His sake, not for my sake. I'm not in it for my sake. I'm in it for His sake because He's worthy of it. 
He's worthy of my life. He's worthy of me presenting my body as a, as a living sacrifice. He's worthy of me devoting myself to him. I think we really, when we self-examine, we say, am I a bondservant? Do I have a bondservant's heart? Do I have a bondservant's attitude? And, will, and do I have a bondservant heart, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm sick or well, or whether I'm in ease, or whether I'm in hardship, or frankly, whether I'm dead or alive? It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter. Our devotion to Christ needs to transcend our circumstances, and it needs to transcend our concern for ourselves. It boils down to one thing. Only and always Christ. That's the heart of a bondservant. See, Jesus knew their hearts. He knew their hearts, and that's why when they came and said, Lord, 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 and tried to commend themselves to him, he said, no, not going to happen. I never knew you. I never was in intimate relationship with you. I never saw you transformed. I never saw your heart changed. You know, it's probably been said from up here before. There are several polls that I think are probably pretty reliable. Barna is one. You could probably name off others. Statistical polls that show that in the United States there are no statistical differences, behavioral differences between Christians and claimed non-believers. Is that about the most heartbreaking thing you can imagine? It should be. It should be. And yet we live in an age where actually what we'll hear is, we'll hear deceived people say, well, see, yeah, it just proves we're not really any different. We're just forgiven. We're not any different, and we're not expected to be any different. We're just forgiven. You know, that sounds so sweet. It sounds so accepting. It sounds so uncondemning. It sounds so loving. I'll tell you what it sounds like. It sounds like <laughs> something totally contrary to God's word. That's what it is. That's what it is. But we live and we're surrounded by people who think this way and believe this way. That's why Jesus' stern warning is so important for us to understand and to heed. You know, we don't do very good with reproof in the U.S. Same church that (laughs) 
wants its ears tickled, does not want to hear any reproof. For the most part, I think Americans are so thin-skinned that we can't be rebuked. And if someone did rebuke us, what would we do? Just head down the street a few blocks to a different church where they don't rebuke you. That's, that's, that's happened out of this church, I'm sure. Something was said from up here. Who knows? It might be happening today. Half of you guys might never come back after what I finished saying here. I hope not, but I hope, but I hope the words I'm speaking are true to the word. Amen? That's not what people want to hear. It's not what they expect to hear. And if someone is actually called out, or in even a gentle rebuke, they said, oh man, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm heading across town because over there, you know, the pews are padded, but they recline. The pews, are, the pews recline, Rod, and they they, they, have, they serve you beverages during the service, and, you know. They make it really, really cozy and comfortable for you. We need to be able to be rebuked. We need to be able to hear a rebuke. We need to be able to accept a rebuke. You know, there are a lot of deceptions that are extremely widespread. I'm going to wrap up quickly here. But I believe that the single greatest deception widespread in the, in the Western church, and when I say the Western church, you guys know what I mean. I don't mean out west. I mean the Western world. And largely I mean the U.S. The great deception in the Western church is this. You prayed a sinner's prayers once, a long time ago, somewhere, well, maybe you didn't even pray it. Maybe we just had you nod your head in approval. Or maybe we had you say, uh-huh, a couple times at the right places. Like, do you agree with this? Uh-huh. Okay, well, would you fill out this little evangelism card uh, for us? And then telling people, you're saved and you're just fine. There was no repentance. And there was no regeneration. And there was no new life as a result of that. And we are surrounded, people. We are surrounded. My church is full of people that that is the depth of their relationship with Christ. They repeated a sinner's prayer. Or as I said, they may have, it may have been so light someone said, well, you know, when you fill out the card, you don't, you don't need to really, like, put your name on it or anything because we don't want to put you on the spot. We're just going to make this so absolutely painless that there is no sacrifice, there is no anything to be done. And someone may say, oh, boy, here we go. It's, it's works. No, it's not works. No, no, no. A thousand times no. And besides, I'd say... Well, let's grow up about that, all right? We're commanded to do stuff. Doing, doing is action. And at some point, taking action is sort of like working. And we're told to work out our salvation. So let's be adults about that. What's the real test? It's the fruit. The fruit Brian was talking about last week. It's not, can we say the words? 
What does the fruit look like? Because there will be fruit. It'll be one way or the other. And if we're bond servants of Christ, the fruit should be real fruit. It should be good fruit. It should be natural fruit. Not like we're sitting around going, I gotta, I gotta grow some fruit somehow. It'll be the natural byproduct of our life. Be the natural thing we'll do. We won't be sitting, we won't be sitting saying, "Man, I've got to work on, you know, number four of the fruit of the spirit more." The fruit of the spirit will be the natural thing that happens out of our life when we walk by the spirit. Amen. I think what Jesus really said, what he's really saying here in Matthew. 21 through 23. He said, Depart from me, those of you who called me Lord, but yet lived as though I never gave you a commandment or a law to obey, or as though my commandments either didn't exist or weren't worthy of you bothering yourself with. That was the difference between people that he said, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest, or the people that he will say, I never knew you. I never knew you. You're a foreigner. You're, you're an alien here. Let us never be guilty of spreading a gospel where we lure people in by enticement. You know, I don't know if you've thought about this. The things that <laughs> the things that the gospel has to offer are not things sinners want. You think about that? Righteousness, holiness, forgiveness, maybe persecution. Many people are signing up for that, Rick. <laughs> Especially when they're unregenerate. They don't want to hear that. They don't want anything to do with that. It's easy for us to think we have to somehow make the gospel so appealing and so painless and so easy for someone to just slide on into the kingdom. And what's happening? Still birthing. That's what I would call it. There was no new birth there. There was no new birth there. The real gospel, the gospel is a, it's a rugged thing. Rugged thing, Donaldo. The gospel of Christ. It says, you've got to give up your right to yourself. You have to give up your right to yourself. I'll just submit. We live in a day and age where not many people darkening the doors of churches have given up the right to themselves. I don't say that to be judgmental. I say that because it breaks my heart to think that is what they've been told. They've been told something that wasn't true. They've been soft-pedaled something that, that wasn't the rugged gospel that Jesus really brought. Now that gospel is, is fantastic. It's good news. That's what it means, right? It's great news. It's the greatest news we could ever have greatest news we could ever have is that because of nothing we did or could ever do, 
we were brought into right relationship with the creator of the universe by the shed blood of his son. When you self-examine, when you meditate about that, wow, she keep you on your knees, Therese. she keep your heart contrite. should keep your heart grateful. should keep your heart thankful. Like, God, you did this for me. You were willing to do this for me. We should never lose our awe of that, people. Never. Let's not entice anybody. Let's not entice anybody with promises of prosperity or promises of better looks or fatter wallet or better vacation. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys got to do that. I'm thrilled for you. So what I want to leave you with. Walk by the Spirit. Examine yourselves. We have to be examining ourselves. We have to be testing ourselves. It doesn't mean we're doing some... Uh, gymnastics, some kind of spiritual gymnastics all the time. We have to be taking our own blood pressure, Therese. We have to be taking our own temperature. What's my, how's my love for the Lord? Is it, is, it, is it there? Is it solid? Has something crept back in to where I started to think I owned my life? That I, that I really had control of my life? That I really started to slip back and say, I surrendered, I took back what I had surrendered and I reclaimed that territory for myself. We can't do that. We can't do that. Let's examine ourselves daily. Let's make sure we're never saying, Lord, Lord, when we don't mean it. When we say, Lord, we need to mean master, the one who owns me, the one I honor, the one I serve, the king, the one I crown, the one I kneel before. Be like David, who said, search me, O God. I love this as a daily prayer. Lord, search me. Know my heart. Shine your light in everything that's going on. If there's anything that needs to be dealt with, pinpoint it. And then lastly, let's be quick to take care of it if there is something. Amen? Are we going to examine ourselves? We need to examine ourselves routinely, regularly. And if we find ourselves not doing great in the exam, we deal with it immediately. We don't delay. Thank you guys so much for your patience. I really appreciate it. Brother Ephron is going to come... Uh, Lead us in communion.